0: Hello? 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 this is MCO. Hello, this is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is, MC- Hello? Hello? This is this another MCO MC- transmission. transmission. Sunday. Uh, Welcome, everybody. I think everybody's been here before, or if you haven't, I'm Michael. This is our Sutra Study Sunday. Uh, I've been gone a month, but now we're back, and we're going to be talking about a new sutra tonight, new to all of us, uh, new to me. I've never taught this sutra, um, but I thought it would be a good place to start. It's called the Brahma Jala Sutta. Uh, Brahma's net. Jala means net. This is Brahma's net. Um, it's from the Diga Nikaya, the long discourses of the Buddha, and it's actually number one in the Diga Nikaya. So, uh, if you're not familiar with these collections, these are the collections of, uh, sutras or suttas, uh, that were preserved in a language called Pali. There's, uh, these various Nikayas, and Nikaya is a collection, so this is actually a collection of some 40 different sutras, And there's multiple Nikayas that make up this sort of Pali canon. Um, Most sort of folks believe or not believe, understand that the Diga, the long discourses of the Buddha, are like not just long because they're the lengthy, but they're the most important. And this is the first sutra in the collection of the most important sutras. So by some estimations, the Brahmajala is like the most important sutra. But that's only if you, you know, base it on those criteria. Um, um, l- I'm going to spend a bit of time talking about the title of this, this Brahmajala, Brahma's Net. Um, but before I get into the the kind of the specifics of the title, I just want you to know that this is an interesting sutra or sutta. Um, because what we're gonna be talking about tonight is about Buddhist morality, basically, the do's and don'ts of Buddhism. And in addition to our Nikayas, in addition to all of our collections of sutras, there's another body of Buddhist writings that's called the Vinaya. And the Vinaya are sort of the rules, if you will, or the precepts for being a Buddhist. So it's actually in the Vinaya that you find out about uh, the various Buddhist rules around (coughs) obviously things like abstaining from taking life, stealing and killing and lying. uh, But the Vinaya rules focus a lot on sexuality, celibacy, things like that. And so what happens is, is that because there's this whole giant body of juridical like Buddhist law... The, the sutras tend not to talk much about that stuff, meaning behavior. The Buddhist sutras tend to talk about the mind, about attachment, mental attachments, defile, mental defilements, kleshas, things like that, greed, hatred, delusion. The sutras tend to focus on the mind, whereas the vinaya kind of focuses on the, the praxis of the body, things like that. What makes the Brahmajala Sutta a little unique is that it's a sutra, but it's talking about the rules. It's talking about the practice of Buddhism. Um, it's kind of a long sutra. It's in the long discourses. Um, and so I think I'm going to split this over two nights. So tonight and next Sunday. Um, the first part of the sutra talks about the morality which, that I'm talking about right now. And then the second part is all about mm, sort of like competing philosophies at the time of the Buddha. He sort of goes about all these different ways of thinking of the self, ways of thinking of the world, and in a way kind of pointing out what's wrong with them, right? So we're going to deal with that stuff next week. That stuff's a little heavy. So instead of trying to tackle it all in one night, we're just going to focus on the first part. Um... Yeah, let's talk about the title and then we'll get into it. So this sutra is a little tricky and I'm gonna actually introduce this in my own way that deviates a little from the traditional way this sutra is taught. And it has to do with this net, right? Sometimes in Buddhism nets are good things, poetic, beautiful things. And sometimes in Buddhism nets are bad things. Like if you're a fish. (laughs) 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 this sutra is about the bad kind of net the one that you don't want to get caught in alright and so this is actually about Brahma's net so this is jala or net and actually you should also know that this sutra is sometimes called the uh, Dharma jala the net of dharma It's sometimes called the Drishti Jala, the Net of Views. Uh, And it has one other title that pops up at the end, but the actual title of this is Brahma's Net. Now, in this collection, they do this thing, which we love this. Uh... Brahmajala, the supreme net, which is an alternative translation of what Brahma means, but I'm going to go through that in a second on the side. Brahmajala sutta, the supreme net, what the teaching is not. So if you've read this before, you might see that this sutra is sometimes called what the teaching is not. The, the sutra, the discourse is a, is a little bit about all of these other ways of thinking of the self and the world. And the Buddha is definitely saying, yeah, we're not into those. But he says what Buddhism is about in this. So take that subtitle, what the teaching is not, take that with a grain of salt. Um, what you should know, though, is what the Brahmajala is. So if you're not familiar with this word Brahma, a quick introduction, we're dealing with a very old Indian concept or idea, like very old. Way before the Buddha, and if you don't, if you don't know, um, if this is your first time here, uh, Buddhism or the Buddha, these texts are come from about 500 BC. Right now, I'm going to be talking about ideas that predate that by thousands of years. We're talking 1,000 BC, 2,000 BC at least. That we're talking in India, people are talking about. Brahman and that's pretty much where it starts the oldest examples of this idea are dealing with something called Brahman which is some has some sort of notion of a creative force that created this world what will happen over time and what i mean by that is, is that if this is a like 2000 BC maybe around a 1000 BC or so, you start to get this concept of a creative force in India, a, 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 a creation-ness that becomes just Brahma, a kind of a personality or a person, what we would call a god, right? A creator god, right? What happens even later on down the road, and actually this doesn't happen until really till I'd say about 500 AD 600 700 this is actually an older idea there starts to be this idea that there is a god named Brahma a god named Vishnu and a god named Shiva these are three distinct kind of gods And what they talk about in traditional Indian cosmology is that Brahma is the creator of the world, Vishnu is a god that is the sustainer of the world, and Shiva is the destroyer of the world. This is actually kind of very, that you know this or that you're thinking in these terms is gonna be important to understanding the sutra. This notion of a past, present, and future That This is where the world came from. This is the force that's holding it up or sustaining it currently. And this is the force that will annihilate it, destroy it. Now again, this is sort of a a slightly more modern idea, at least within the common era. And what really happens in India, and this is not going to be a class in Indian religion or Indian mythology or anything like that, but you should know that That India, the subcontinent of India, here's like Sri Lanka, India as a unified country, nation, you know, that's a relatively modern idea. What traditionally you have is various pockets of religious activity that over time eventually meet and merge and meet and merge and then meet and merge and so you kind of had some what are called Shaivites, worshippers of Shiva in various regions, and then worshippers of Vishnu in other places. And if you've heard of the god Krishna, Krishna is kind of an incarnation or an avatar of Vishnu. And then you had this really old god, an idea of god that like was the creator of the universe. What I am kind of want to get at is that for the folks that were worshiping Shiva back in the day, Shiva was the creator of the world. Shiva was the sustainer of the world. Shiva was the destroyer of the world. For the people worshiping Vishnu, Vishnu was the creator of the world. Vishnu was the sustainer of the world. Vishnu was the destroyer of the world. But once India becomes this kind of unified idea of a nation or country or something like that, this all kind of works out where it's like, okay, well, maybe it's like this. And so you get this triune or triptych of a god. And then there is a notion that these are all avatars or incarnations or whatever of one god, the Tatriya. The Tatriya is this word for this singular idea. Okay? I'm not, I, I don't want to confuse anybody, but I, again, I just want you to know that Brahma has this n- deep notion of a creator. And then within this context is understood as the past. This will be relevant. Originally, you just have in the oldest texts, the oldest ideas of India, you have the idea of a creative force. It has no face, no multiple arms. It's just the concept of a creative force that then gets four faces, a bunch of arms, and becomes a creative god. And then in India, there becomes a class or a caste of people that are priests of this creator god. And they are called Brahmins, with an I. So this starts to get a little tricky. You get these priests that are Brahmins that are worshiping Brahma, the god of Brahma. And then, this will be relevant to our text, you get something called the Brahmakarya, the way of Brahma, the path of Brahma, the practice of Brahma, and without getting too into the specifics of it, the way of Brahma is celibacy. And that'll be relevant to when we get into the actual text. I want you to know all of this because this is a sutra, but it's also a story about a Brahmin and this priest. Uh, student and their kind of ideas about Buddhism in fact they don't like Buddhism they have a problem with it or at least one of them does and so this is going to be you know I often teach sutras this way where I teach them both kind of as historical documents which this is this is a historical document about the Buddha about some historical events in India but it's also a little allegorical where the people in it and the events in it represent or signify things. right? So this is kind of some like subtle poetry here. Um, this title, Brahma Jala Brahma's Net, is referring to this god, this creator of this world. But, he's, but it's really actually going to be referring to the The theology, if you will, of the Brahmins, their worldview versus the Buddhist worldview. And so this will be another great text or another great sutra for understanding what makes Buddhism Buddhism from a country or a region in which a lot of people were meditating. A lot of people were talking about nirvana or release from this world, release from suffering and all of that. What makes Buddhism Buddhism and not, quote, Hinduism or Brahmin worship or Jainism or any of these other religions? What makes Buddhism Buddhism? This is a great sutra for explaining that. What makes Buddhism what it is and not all of these other schools? Thus, the title, What the Teaching is Not. Right. Um... One other thing before I dive into the text. Uh, like I said, the first part of this is going to be dealing with Buddhist morality. And in particular, this is a sutra, like all Buddhist sutras, and at least in the Nikayas, this sutra is directed towards monks and nuns, renunciants, right? Ascetics, people who have renounced the world. In, in Buddhist parlance, those who have left home. They've given it up, right? And so when we're taught when we get into the morality section, there's going to be a lot of talk about celibacy. There's going to be a lot of talk about various practices that are specific to the monk and the nun. Now, of course, at the at the SFDC here, we're not a monastic organization. We're not promoting monasticism or even renunciation in that extreme form at all. And so. You know, one way of reading this would be like, "Whoa, Buddha's telling me I gotta be celibate, and if I'm not celibate, I'm not a good Buddhist." That's not how we're reading that tonight. What I want to do with this tonight is that as we go through it, I want us to read these these moral points. I want to read these pro, these rules or these precepts, and kind of have a conversation about what are they getting at what are they getting at with this rule and then what could we take away from it? Not in terms of our specific action but in, some, in our own actions if that makes sense. Yeah? So I want to try to you know, bring this into the modern world here tonight. Yeah? Uh, and also go through this really interesting allegory. So, everybody ready? Yeah. Thus have I heard, Ananda tells us. Once the Lord, the Buddha, was traveling along the main road between Rajgriha and Nalanda with a large company of some 500 monks. Now, if you don't know, Rajgriha is the capital of Magadha. Magadha is this region in northeastern India. Well, it was a, the name of this region, Magadha. Rajgriha is the capital of that, and Nalanda Nalanda at the time of the Buddha became a, a, a hotbed of Buddhist activity, but after the Buddha died, Nalanda became the site for the Buddhist university in India. Like shortly after the lifetime of the Buddha, Nalanda became the center of Buddhist learning and eventually became a huge actual university, like people traveling from all over the known world to come to Nalanda. Um, so an important location in Buddhist uh, history, and interestingly, these uh, all these monks with the Buddha were traveling on the main road between Rajgriha and Nalanda, and the wanderer Supiya was also traveling on that road with his pupil, the youth Brahmadatta. Now, it doesn't happen to mention, but Supiya is a Brahmin priest. You should know that these Brahmins, these priests. <laughs> They meditated a lot back in the day. They were celibate. They did a lot of austerities, a lot of austere practices. What I want to get at is that within, the, within this time period, 500 BC, Brahmins were ascetics, wanderers, not too unlike Buddhists in that way. And Supiya, our senior Brahmin teacher here, was finding fault in all sorts of ways with the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, right? The teacher, his teachings, and the community following them. Whereas his pupil, Brahmadatta, was speaking in various ways in praise of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so these two, teacher and pupil, directly opposing each other's arguments, followed closely behind the Buddha and his order of monks. Then the Lord stopped for one night with his monks at the royal park of Ambalathika, And Supiya, too, stopped there for the night with his pupil Brahmadatta. And Supiya went on abusing the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, while his pupil Brahmadatta defended them. And thus, disputing, they followed close behind the Buddha and his order of monks. Now, in the early morning, a number of monks, having gotten up, gathered together and sat in the round pavilion. And this was the trend of their talk. It is wonderful, friends. It is marvelous how the blessed Lord, the Arahat, the fully enlightened Buddha knows, sees, and clearly distinguishes the different inclinations of all beings. For here is the wanderer Supiya finding fault in all sorts of ways with the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, while his pupil Brahmadatta in various ways defends them. And still disputing, they follow closely behind the blessed Lord and his order of monks. Then the Lord, being aware of what those monks were saying, went to the round pavilion and sat down on his prepared seat. Then he said, monks, what was the subject of your conversation just now? What talk have I interrupted? And they told him. And then the Buddha said, monks, If anyone should speak in disparagement of me, of the Dharma, or the Sangha, you should not be angry, resentful, or upset on that account. If you were to be angry or displeased at such disparagement, that would only be a hindrance to you. For if others disparage me, the Dharma, or the Sangha, and you are angry or displeased, can you recognize whether what they are saying is right or not? No, Lord, they said, if others disparage me, the Dharma or the Sangha, then you must explain what is incorrect as being incorrect, saying, that is incorrect, that is false, that is not our way, that is not found among us. But, monks, if others should speak in praise of me, of the Dharma or the Sangha, You should not, on that account, be pleased, happy, or elated. If you were to be pleased, happy, or elated at such praise, that would only be a hindrance to you. If others praise me, the Dharma, or the Sangha, you should acknowledge the truth of what is true, saying, that is correct, that is right, that is our way, that is found among us. It is, monks, for elementary, Inferior matters of moral practice that the worldling, the average human, would praise the Buddha. And what are these elementary inferior matters for which the worldling would praise the Buddha? And then we have our first section on morality. But I want to pause to make sure we understood the first part. Right? So this is classic Uh, what would be called Madhyamaka, middle path, middle road Buddhism. So I don't know. I just want to reiterate it in case you missed it. Got these people saying all kinds of nasty stuff about the Buddha. And the Buddha's answer is like, let them say whatever they're going to say. Don't let it get to you. Because if it it gets to you, you will not have a clear head to discern whether what they're saying is right or wrong. You're going to just be totally on emotion. Right? So this is some sagely advice that, in many ways, is very applicable to our own world, like this modern online world where we're kind of reacting a lot to, to uh, haters, right, to disparagement, things like that, right? So the Buddha's advice is really great. like, yeah, don't let it get to you. like if they've got problems with it, then that's their problem. Don't let it be your problem, too, right? But then the real wisdom kicks in, right? When the Buddha says, but then if people are saying good things about me or my teachings or my community, don't let that get you all worked up either because that'll be a hindrance to you. So that again is classic middle path, middle road Buddhism. Not over here, not over here either. Right in the middle. Yeah. Okay. So that's like the first lesson here, which again is that's gold right there, especially that one about not letting the praise get to you, right, because we all know that, like, disparagement and bad talking, like, we all know that's a problem, but there's a way in which we sort of think, oh, no, praise and lauding, that's good. In Buddhism, it's kind of like, well, depends, all right, so this is where it gets very interesting, though. And, and unfortunately, because I'm only going to do this, or because I'm going to do this in two nights, we're not going to get to the punchline later. But I want to reiterate this. Um, the Buddha says that it's for elementary, basic, inferior matters of moral practice that, that the worldling, your average Joe, would praise the Buddha. And what are these elementary inferior matters for which an average Joe would praise the Buddha? That's what we're about to go through. We're going to actually go through a summary of the entire Vinaya. It's why actually the sutra is sort of well-known. Because this is a quick summary of all the rules, like what it is to be a Buddhist. But what's very interesting is the Buddha is sitting here saying, you know, average people would think I'm a good guy or think that we're good practitioners because of all this moral behavior I'm about to outline. And the punchline that I'm not really going to be able to get it full to is he's going to say, this is why people should praise the Buddha. Not because of these actions, but because of this incredible wisdom that comes sort of at the end of the sutra. Okay. Everybody ready for some morality? Again, this is an outline. And, and again, I'm going to read these and I want you to hear it. I want you to hear what's being said, what's being asked of the monks. But then what I really want to do is then have a deeper conversation about what's really being asked and then what could we possibly take away from this, right? So um, here we go. And what are these elementary inferior matters for which an average Joe would praise the Buddha? Abandoning the taking of life, the ascetic Gotama dwells refraining from taking life without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Thus, the worldling would praise the Buddha. That's rule number one, by the way. No taking life, no killing. It's debatable about where that ends, where that begins in terms of like a plant life. It's okay to kill plant life, but pay attention because this gets uh, more interesting. So I'll read this for a while and then, yeah, and then we'll talk specifically. So there's just this one section. So, number two, abandoning the taking of what is not given. The ascetic Gotama dwells refraining from taking what is not given. Living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing. Number two. Number three, abandoning unchastity, the ascetic Gautama lives far from it, aloof from the village practice of sex. (laughs) Next, abandoning false speech, the ascetic Gautama dwells refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable not a deceiver of the world. Next, abandoning malicious speech. He does not repeat there what he has heard here to the detriment of these or repeat here what he has heard there to the detriment of those. Thus, he is a reconciler of those at variance and an encourager of those at one, rejoicing in peace, loving it, delighting in it, one who speaks up for peace. Abandoning harsh speech, he refrains from it. He speaks whatever is blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, urbane, pleasing and attractive to the multitudes. Abandoning idle chatter, he speaks at the right time, what is correct and to the point of dharma and discipline. He is, a speaker of, he is a speaker whose words are to be treasured, seasonable, reasoned, well-defined, and connected with the goal. Thus, the worldling would praise the Buddha. The ascetic Gautama is a refrainer from damaging seeds and crops. He eats once a day and not at night, refraining from eating at improper times. He avoids watching dancing, singing, music, and shows. He abstains from using garlands, perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments, and adornments. He avoids using a high or wide bed. He avoids accepting gold and silver. He avoids accepting raw grain and raw flesh. He does not accept women and young girls, male or female slaves, sheep or goats, cocks or pigs, elephants, cattle, horses, and mares, fields, or plots. He refrains from running errands, from buying and selling, from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity, from wounding, killing, imprisoning, highway robbery, and taking food by force. Thus the worldling would praise the Buddha. So that, what I just read, is a paraphrase, or not even a paraphrase, because actually it's an, an a, a elongation of what are known as the 10 precepts. So if you were paying attention, there's probably a good 14, 15 precepts in there, a lot of them dealing with speech and like different ways of speaking or speaking properly. And what happens in Buddhism is, is that if you're gonna sign up to be a monk and you're like, yeah, I wanna be a monk. And so you go through an initial um, initiation ritual to become what's called a shramana, which is a novice monk. What makes you a novice monk is that you agree to the 10 precepts. Mm -hmm. And you follow these 10 precepts for, depending on the Buddhist community, a couple of years. And it's sort of like to make sure this life is right for you. And if you pass this two-year probationary period following just these 10 rules and you're like, yeah, that's uh, this is working for me. I'm in it. Then you take the full 227 rules or or vows. You vow to do X, Y, and Z. And then after that, the idea is there's no turning back. And in Buddhism, you should know that that probationary period, it is super cool and okay to turn back because that's the whole idea is that they don't want anybody signing up for the full the full unless they know it's really for them. So they don't really want people signing up for all 227 rules and then being like, "Yeah, this isn't for me. I'm out of here." So you take the 10, which I want to go over again real quickly just to make sure we know what those 10 are. But yeah, Jenny. It,
1: it seems so crazy that on one hand, it's like, "All right, middle path." Mm. And then on the other hand, you're not even going here.
0: <laughs> yep. Yep. You're not Running errands. You're not even going to run errands. Yep. That's my favorite one. That one's easy. I'll get that one. Yeah. Running errands. Yep. So,
1: yep. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, why does it specifically tell you not to fuck with the seeds? To not be a farmer? Or like to destroy them, right? Yeah, yeah. To like not like. No, but
0: the implication is actually to farm.
1: Okay. Oh, okay. So yeah. don't be a farmer.
0: Don't be a farmer. Okay don't basically there's kind of a pro a, a tacit prohibition against laboring
1: okay because it sounds like crop sabotage or they're trying to yeah <laughs> and it has <laughs> it has more to do
0: with a sickle and yeah uh, which would be considered like a weird violent act to be out in the field threshing is that called threshing when you go through with your sickle right so all of that is wrapped up in a, a way of life that for Buddhists, the way of life is like this. It's about leftovers. And it's like literally leftovers. That's why there's the prohibition against receiving raw grain and raw flesh. The idea being if you've had a bunch of raw rice, I would need to cook it. If I had a bunch of raw flesh, I would need to cook it. Versus being given leftovers, it's like, oh no, we already ate. Here, here, here you go.
1: So is it about action or is it about manipulation of the living uh, you know like refreshing is like you're, okay you're cutting down plants but then getting into the cooking is it
0: just about action itself and manipulating the world those particular so all of these and we're going to get into the other sections with all, even more rules but all of these rules can be subdivided under the eightfold path. So the eightfold path is what's overarching this. So if you think of something like right speech, for example, right speech is defined as not idle speech, not uh, idle chit-chat, like everything that was just said in here regarding speech, telling the truth, all of that, that's right speech. Everything that's in here that's regarding the crops and all that is about right livelihood. Mm -hmm. And again, I want to have a good conversation tonight about what this might mean for us, what, is, what, what might right livelihood mean for a bunch of householders in that regard. But because we're also Dharma students and want to know all of this, you should know that traditionally right livelihood is defined as begging. That is the right way of, of living. Not working, not laboring, begging. That's considered right livelihood. Traditionally, Just like right view is traditionally seeing things as impermanent. If you didn't know, traditionally right view is just seeing things as impermanent. That is the right view. Now, it gets elaborated in in more complex ways than that. And having the right Buddhist view involves emptiness, involves all kinds of things. But each of the Eightfold Path can be reduced down to actually a very, like, uh, right speech is truthfulness, and then you get into the gradations of not harmful speech and all of that. But you, they all can be reduced down to an actual prohibition against a certain way of doing or whatever. And again, livelihood is about begging. And so the, a lot of that speaks to that. So
1: uh, I understand that we want to interpret that differently now. But uh, I- assuming that right livelihood is only begging, that assumes that there's a bunch of people who are not having right livelihood. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. They, are, they are necessary, I mean you know, otherwise like, yep. everybody's making it. <laughs> so, Yeah. So what, what's up with these people who are just <laughs> giving you the <know? laughs> food? So
0: that's a, it's a great question, and uh, there's so much I could say about it, but the again, this is a old sutra, right, from the original kind of Theravada Pali tradition. It's for monks, by monks, all of that, right? And so the whole Theravada project is based on the idea or the concept that there are those who are karmically ready, meaning for ready for renunciation, and there are those who are karmically not ready for renunciation. Those who are not ready for renunciation, their best bet is to help those that are ready. So there is an understanding that there's those that are ready and those that are not and and that those who aren't ready to renounce, well, then they could support those who are ready. And then in their next life, they'll be ready because of the practice of generosity in this life. That's the general karmic view here. Your question, though, is sort of along the same lines Or I would put your question along the same lines as this thing about celibacy. But if everybody did that, we would quickly run out of people. it all be over soon. And the Buddhists are like, yeah, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Mara's realm, samsara, would be dried up. There would be no beings left for Mara to torment if we all practice celibacy. That's the Buddhist worldview as well. It is not a problem if we all did that. From an original Buddhist point of view, it's a giant source of craving and desire and teasing and suffering and all of that. And so, to not have any part of it and just to sit meditate—that's like the best bet. So, but I want to get to this because again, we're dealing with a very historic form of Buddhism, but again, trying to bring it into the modern world. So let's talk: abandoning taking of life, the ascetic atama dwells, refraining from taking life. Without stick or sword, gun, whatever, right? Put any weapon of your choice here. He doesn't have it. No stick, no sword. Scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Anybody have a problem with that? Does anybody... I don't want to say, you know, we're taking vows or precepts, but in terms of bringing this into our modern world, abandoning the taking of life right now of course this is tricky how again how do you define that right if if we start with just you know homicide right just killing people I would hope pray that we all are on board (laughs) right
1: not not under all circumstances
0: Great, great point great point for the Buddhist...
1: Yeah, me personally. I mean, Indeed. nobody's in danger tonight, but like, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a very interesting uh, conundrum of, of a sort, though. Or not even a conundrum, but it's a moral, philosophical problem. For the Buddhists, there is no righteous killing, ever. It is, it is, there's no middle path when it comes to killing... There's none of that. Now, it gets a little tricky in terms of like, oh man, I stepped on a bug, I really didn't mean to. There's that, versus die, there's That's two different things. One is deeply violent and and full of animosity and the other one is like, oh man, I stepped on a bug. Ah, I I really wish I hadn't done that. Two very different modes of being, right? So I guess what I want, you know, I don't want to spend all night just on this first precept, but it, it's, in its most general sense, it is just homicide. It is just same, same aside, right? Just killing that which I consider to be the same as me. That's sort of our normal mode of not killing. Only that which looks like me a little bit. That's, that's, that's enough traditionally, I don't actually know if the early Theravādins limited it to just humans. The reason why I say this is, is that if you've been coming to my classes, you know I talk a lot about this, this movement or this shift sort of away from an earlier, kind of more arcane form of Buddhism to what would be called a Mahayana type of Buddhism. And in Mahayana Buddhism, which is sort of more, predominantly practiced in the world today, ahimsa or this rule against taking life is like trying not to take any life. Now, not to the Jain extent to where they're going to such limits, but if if a Buddhist, a Mahayana Buddhist, who's taken the, the, either the 10 vows or the 48 Bodhisattva precepts or anything like that, they're like praying they don't kill anything. If you know what I mean, like they're actively trying, obviously not to kill anybody or anything, but they're, the general place of their heart is like, I would really like to not step on a bug. I would really like to not take any life today. It might be impossible, but that's where my heart's at. And I, I hope you can see the difference I'm making that in terms of action, intention, and all of that. You might still step on a bug. You might still do shit. You still might drive your car into somebody and kill them, right? But in terms of one's mind state and one's desire or not desire, um, I think certainly for the Mahayana, they're trying not to take any life in that way. So, So there's that. Questions, ideas about taking life, killing, right? Again, Ten Commandments, Buddhism, everybody's talking about this. It's just an interesting question or idea of like, but, but what do you mean? Like, can I kill a plant? Next, abandoning the taking, the taking of what is not given, the ascetic Atama dwells refraining from taking what is not given. Living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given, living purely, or sorry, accepting what is given, waiting what is given without stealing. So that's number two. No taking life and then don't take what hasn't been given to you. Right? Anybody got any problem with that? What I mean is, is that like, that doesn't sound arcane to me. That doesn't sound outdated to me. That sounds right in line with what would make a healthy community or a healthy society. Is if everybody was on, pay, on board with that. Right? Don't take what is not given. Now, if we're thinking about Buddhism, the practice of it, we're thinking about the Dharma, why would anybody who's embarked on this path really want to go out and take a bunch of stuff? We're trying not to have attachments to stuff to begin with. That's the, pr- the practice is non-attachment to begin with. And so forget about the fact that it belongs to somebody else and you might be going and taking something from somebody else. Why do you even want it? That's what the, the Buddhist is asking. You're not even really supposed to be like really interested in stuff. Right? So what I'm saying is there's a spectrum, like with the killing, We can stop at just humans, or we can go all the way to the plants, right? And just like with this, we can say, like, just take, you know, not taking, or we go all the way to like abandoning all desire for objects and stuff entirely. Questions, ideas about stealing? are very cool with not stealing. What
1: was the last
0: one? In here? For that one?
1: Yeah.
0: uh, living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing. Without feeling. stealing. Yeah. No, Without stealing. Yeah, no stealing. But it's also, you know, yeah, no stealing. But it's also predicated on the, what I said was right livelihood. Just waiting. Begging and waiting to be given something. And so if we fast forward just a, a moment to the no touching gold and silver if you, if you caught that line about not touching gold or silver, that's because people aren't supposed to be buying anything.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just begging and being given. Do you have a question or an idea?
1: Um, it was really it was, it was killing, which
0: we can Don't mind going back.
1: Um, so I've heard, and like, I'm not much of a scholar, so I don't know if my sources are correct, but like, the Buddha is said to have died from eating a piece of spoiled meat. Is that true?
0: Yeah, we like, don't even know if except. there was a Buddha or whatever. But in terms of the story, we also don't know. Um, there is basically two schools of thought based on this odd poly term. This poly term that for what he ate is pigs delight. <laughs> It's a poly word that means pig's delight, and there are sources that indicate that those are truffles and that he ate poisonous mushrooms or poisonous truffles right. there's another school of thought that's like no no, no it's it's the good the good pig right. like and he ate belly and he ate pork or yeah he ate, he ate the the chitterlings and like uh, whatever right so <laughs> what happens is is that if you don't know, you should know that within the earliest schools of Buddhism, they ate meat. It was fine to eat meat. They couldn't kill anything. They couldn't cook anything. And more, perhaps more importantly, they couldn't receive any meat if it was killed and cooked for them. It has to be leftovers from like some party or something. It's like, oh, we just have some leftover. So the earliest rule was about only receiving what was given. But whatever was put in the bowl, you know, a little whatever, it was all good. Later on in Buddhism, particularly Mahayana Buddhism, they became totally vegetarian. Then it became a big problem if the Buddha died from eating pork. And so then they're like, "Ah, maybe they're talking about truffle. Maybe they're talking about mushrooms, right? (laughs) So nobody really knows. But indeed, he died from dysentery. Or at least all indications is that he died from very bad stomach something yeah.
1: Nope. Um, I'm wondering if the prohibition of the rule about stealing or taking what's not yours also extends to taking sort of more than you need or if that's separate or if that's not even in there so it kind of gets into greed but you know
0: yeah I would actually want to emphasize on that uh, a kind of something that runs through a lot of these and that's actually about um, like social cohesion or things like that about how a group can get along so I actually think uh, the idea of not taking somebody else's thing is actually about maintaining social order and not so much more than one needs in that way not to say that that's not in there but I think the the bigger implication is about A community get living together and that it's not going to last very long if people are sneaking in and taking other people's whatever yeah
1: i sort of like the idea of that time too i don't know if it did like then but taking what's not freely given in terms of time like i've definitely talked to (laughs) some buddhists who give me like impromptu lectures on things and after like 10 minutes i'm like Ah, right. ah. And then there's like all this, like I have to be somewhere and I'm like signaling that I have to ah, go. but yeah, There's yeah. Almost this like time that isn't being fully given. Yeah, yeah. That
0: would, that's interesting to put that in terms of not about speech, but about uh, giving and not. Yeah. And that's it's an interesting take on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to, to jump ahead there to, well, actually, no, I don't want to skip over this, but um, the big one, the big one abandoning unchastity the ascetic utama lives far from it aloof from the village practice of sex so this is another one that has a nice big spectrum on it meaning that the original rule was no sex period in fact the original rule was for basically I mean the original rule was don't even for men don't even emit semen don't masturbate, don't think about it. If you have a nocturnal emission, a wet dream, then it's like not totally your fault, but you still like did a bad thing. It's like they're really focused on ejaculation and not having it. And basically for women, all the rules are about sexual satisfaction, like pleasure in a certain way. I did my master's thesis on all of these rules and kind of, did a weird Freudian analysis of all these rules and all. It was kind of a, a funny thesis. But what I can tell you is, is that there's a few more rules for, for nuns than for monks. And a lot of those extra rules for women, for the, for the nuns, have to do with the particularities of the female sexual organ and female sexuality. So for example, there's a, an odd rule that nuns, can't do a wash in a river facing upstream. (laughs) (laughs) And at first you're like, and then you're like, and so there's a few of these rules that are about that that of course don't apply to the monks. They're not going to get the same satisfaction in that way. And so when it, when, often when people hear that there's more rules for nuns than monks, they're like, oh, yeah, of course there is. But they're actually very nuanced rules that are not really about, oh, yeah, because women are way more unruly and so they need a few more rules to keep them in line. It's actually about how the Vinaya is very, um, uh, well, A, the, all of these rules actually come about from people doing things. So the whole Vinaya is actually a set of stories about how there was a nun doing her wash in the middle of the river facing upstream and all the other nuns were like, hey, she's getting off. <laughs> they went back to the Buddha and were like, nun so-and-so was doing whatever, and he was like, okay, yeah, no more doing that. So all of the rules actually come from actual events where it was determined that that was not good. So, Okay, um, so the spectrum, again, is... Zero sexuality, zero, zero, zero. And then once these rules start to get brought into so called laity, there's sort of this ta- talk about like monogamy, there's talk about like no kinky stuff within a monogamous relationship. So Buddhists have struggled in the modern world because, actually, just like the Christians originally they were not into having sex you know the christians the original christians thought they were out of here they thought jc was coming back any second and we were getting on the comet and we were getting out of here so there were basically not rules but just a general like yeah we're not having babies we're not having sex we're out of here buddhism was also of course very anti-sex and i want to have a little talk about why that is but of course things have moved along Buddhism has opened up to the laity, opened up to householders and all of that. And so they had struggled with this sexuality thing because originally Buddhism was like, no, none, zero. It's the greatest temptation. It's the greatest desire. It's the greatest mind fuck to screw you up. So just don't do it. Just, just, And not only that, it's, it's not even, in Buddhism, or at least the monastic form, it's not even like, don't do it. It's don't want it. That's actually the, the what they're working on, is you wanting it, not the doing in that sense, because again, they're focusing on desire. So I, I, I want to talk about this sexuality stuff because it's, it's A, it's part of this brahmacarya, which even in Buddhism they talk about the monks walking the brahmacharya they've held on to this idea of the brahmacharya or celibacy and i don't have all, i don't have all night so i just want to i want you to know that yes within the buddhist world they're interested in desire this uh, uh, extreme form of desire which is sexual desire but there is something more possibly physiological and anatomical going on with sexuality in meditation, in India, and all of that. That sexual energy is considered very, very potent. It's considered very, very, very strong. Um, And when one is celibate, Rather than expending that energy and having it either just fall on the floor or go to make a baby, like having that energy go and then become life. Rather than expending that energy, the philosophy, the practice is conserving that energy, alchemically transforming that energy and then using that energy. That This is not just Buddhism. This is like... Um, I, I, again, I don't have all night, but you go over here, you go to China. You go to China 1500 BC, 1000 BC, long before we know they've had intimate contact with India and the, the monks, or not monks, but the ascetics in China, they're extolling the virtues of celibacy, extolling the virtues of preserving the sexual energy, transforming it, and using it. So... What I want, what I would like to get across is that the Judeo-Christian world that we live in, unfortunately, and whether you participate in it or not, if you think it's 2019, you're in the Judeo-Christian mythology, right? Because it's 2019 Anno Domini. And so we're in that world, whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not. It is the culture that we live in. And so, within that Judeo-Christian worldview, sexuality has this crazy, you know, bad. It's bad, ew, and like all of this weird stuff around it, right? And then it just causes all of this weird Catholic guilt and all this stuff, and it's like, And so, I I find in my Dharma teaching that when I start to talk about celibacy in Buddhism, there's a certain knee-jerk reaction to that. And I want you to know that the Buddhists are not saying, like, that's it's bad, it's, ew, it's icky or nasty or anything like that. They're actually dealing with some deep, again, physiology, where they actually understand this is energy, deep, powerful energy. And there's no denying it. There's no denying how powerful this energy is. Again, it can create life. I can't say it any more bluntly than that. It's a very, very powerful energy. And so the idea that we could possibly preserve and use that energy, that might seem totally foreign to the Judeo-Christian worldview, but to the people of India, it was like, yeah, that's how it works. That's what's going on. And actually, these little shaved head, celibate people were considered very, very, like, aura special because of this practice to the point where you could literally like rub them and get goodness because they had been preserving that sexual energy so it kind of cuts those two ways you can either think of it in terms of desire and then controlling that desire and I also would ask you to really think about how strong that desire is how um you know or you know I think we all go through this in our life, or I'll speak for myself, but like obviously through puberty, adolescence, it's it's crazy to deal with, like in terms of it just haunting your mind or just like, ah. And then as you get older, hopefully, you know, it it becomes less, um, um, you know, myopic or whatever, where you're focusing it all all the time. But so hearken back if you must. Harken back to your youth when it was such a... Uh, right? Whether it was like good or bad or whatever, like the preoccupation with it. it. Just think about that. And that Buddhism is like, yeah, that's a real serious mental hangup or desire. How interesting would it be if you could fully control that? Right? And so then rather than being led around... And by your sexual organs, you could actually be in control of that. Most meditation traditions are talking about self-mastery. And a big part of self-mastery or like the epitome of of self-mastery is being able to control that desire. Like for, at least for descriptions of the advanced yogi, it's like, Fully, via will, I can have an erection, I can make the erection go away. Fully, I mean, via one's will, so that it has, one has that amount of control over the sexual desire. So, I hope, yeah.
1: So a little later Buddhism, uh, even earlier, like Vipassana, or you know, like when you get to Buddha nature and all of that, there's like consciousness that is so vast that whatever comes in, you know, it's like, yeah, you, know, you, can, you it's part. Of, you, you're, you you can, you know, it's part of the big, big Buddha nature anyway. And if you're there and you remove the veils, and whatever, right? And so, so in that, from that perspective, there's no notion of like controlling things and like, you know, and you you talk about like controlling the sexual energy, transforming it, like actively. Uh, and it seems to be different than a lot of other teachings that are more about uh, having a vast consciousness, and also that yeah, it just happens, and it's you know, it's part of.
0: Um, on that, <laughs> uh, on that note, I would, I would then want you to think about, well, what are we talking about with this vast open consciousness? Well, let's put over here, vast open consciousness. Right. Well, what is not vast open consciousness is a very preoccupied, worried mind, all full of ideas and stuff, and blah 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 blah. Right? All going about, and the whole project of Buddhism is, or at least the meditation aspect of Buddhism, is about recognizing that all of this chit chat, chatter, and all of that. Is and if I can calm that down, maybe I'm not thinking about a hundred things, maybe I'm thinking about 50 things, and then maybe not 50, 25, maybe not 25, just 10, maybe just two, me and the bowl, maybe just one, like limiting that, what would be called sati or smirti, mindful concentration, by getting rid of all the chit chat and getting to that single pointed awareness one moves into this vast consciousness. That's how it happens. You follow me? The idea is, is that the this, this sexualness is also like, ah, in terms of want, desire, ah, oh, there it goes again, ah, oh, like being worked up about these things. And so in a similar fashion, I mean, maybe I presented it as this kind of control versus a letting go. A calming down of that and so in the same way that the mind calms down the emotions the sexuality calms down and moves you into that vast awareness yeah so I made it I may have just made it sound more manipulative than it actually is because it's actually about calming down even in terms of sexuality it's about calming down there's also a lot also in sexuality, regarding want and desire, but not just for sexual satisfaction, if you know what I mean. And what I mean by that is, is like sexuality is very complicated in terms of why we do it and what we want to get out of it, in terms of, you know, I don't want to psychologize the whole situation, but the idea of like wanting someone to love me, wanting somebody to, to like me, is, has nothing to do with sexuality, but it plays out in sexuality. Because if somebody sleeps with me, they must like me, type of a thing. And so the idea of like the relationship between sexuality and want and desire, again, it goes much deeper than just sexual satisfi- satisfaction. So that's why I think the Buddhists focus on it, and of course the Buddha is famous for having said, if there was a desire stronger than sexuality, he never would have gotten enlightened. He says, it's, the, it's crazy, that one. The sexuality one's crazy. And he said, if there was something a little crazier than that, I never would have got, gotten there. So, interesting. Any other ideas about sexuality? Again, Buddhism in the modern world has moved, I don't want to say away from celibacy, because to be a monk or a nun is still about being celibate. Unless you're in Japan.
1: Okay. It's always been, perhaps, even in, in 2500, in India, was always political, was always social, was always controlled, yeah. and, and so this is not, this is a, this is a reaction,
0: you know, you know the, 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 the Pope says to the king, you
1: know, you keep them poor and we'll keep them stupid. It's the same thing here, 2,500 years, 3,000 years, 5,000 years ago. It's the same thing. It's about control. And the Buddha comes along and says, let's, let's,
0: move, let's just, here, here are rules. Here are social rules, a social
1: contract that we now all get to live in, a social contract in this country. We, we commit to the social contract. We break the social contract. Here's another, but this is for the monks and for the nuns. Mm-hmm. But it's in response to politics.
0: Yeah, that speaks to to my point that sexuality and the prohibition against it or whatever is about a lot more than just sexual desire. In that way, yeah, very much. Because again, we're talking about the we're talking about procreation, we're talking about families, householders. All of that gets bound up in it, and the Buddha's just saying, yeah, let's just, just not have anything to do with that. Now, what I would ask, again, in, in our attempt to, to think about these things in 2019, to think about these things today, again, I'm not, I'm not here suggesting anybody be celibate. I want you all to understand why the Buddhists have maybe recommended it. I want you to understand all of that, but I'm not here saying it's the way or anything like that. But through this conversation, I do would like us all to think about like what's up with that? And again, not dismiss it out of hand and be like, "Well, I'm not doing that." But actually, just like think about it, and then well, what? If I'm a practitioner, if I'm a Dharma practitioner, what does that mean for me? I'm married, right? I'm having sex. I'm I'm good. But what what does this convey to me, though? If if you know what I mean, you know. And that's actually where modern Buddhist teachers are very valuable and effective in the sense of how do these things still pertain to me if I'm a householder and all of that, you know? And that's where it comes back to compassion, generosity, and kindness, right? Giving, all of that, those are valuable even within a sexually active relationship. Compassion, kindness, and giving, hell yeah, (laughs) Right, as it pertains to sexuality. Right. Okay. So then we get our speech, uh, abandoning false speech. The ascetic dwells, refraining from false speech. True speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. I would hope nobody has an interest in deceiving the world. I hope everybody has an interest in being dependable, trustworthy, all of that. So, I, I, in other words, I don't think any of that changes in the modern world in terms of a vow, or at least an intention. Uh, Abandoning malicious speech, who needs malicious speech? He does not repeat, this is one of my favorite, he does not repeat there, what he has heard here, to the detriment of these, or repeat here, what he has heard there, to the detriment of those. There's a lot of talk in Buddhism, actually, about, like, like, I don't even know what you would call it. Like, talking behind people's back? There's a, 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 another sutra, it doesn't say it in this one, but there's another sutra about how it's basically you should never talk about somebody that's not in the room. A very like valuable idea, right? And ever since I read that, which was recently that I read uh, in a different sutra about not talking about people that aren't in the room, I've realized how often I do it and how often I'm privy to it. And as soon as I read it, I started realizing, oh, yeah, that's kind of n- nasty. Or not nasty, but it's kind of like unfair to the person that isn't there. So, anyways. Uh, Thus he's a reconciler of those at variance, an encourager of those one, rejoicing in peace, loving it, delighting in it. One who speaks up for peace. Come on. Right? <laughs> Harsh speech, who needs it? He refrains from it. He speaks whatever is blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, urbane, pleasing and attractive to the multitudes, abandoning idle chatter. He speaks at the right time, what is correct, and to the point. He is a speaker whose words are to be treasured, seasonable, reasoned, well-defined, and connected with the goal. Thus the worldling would praise the Tathagata, the Buddha. Questions about speech? Again.
1: Aren't they only talking to other monks? Yes. Yeah.
0: And what I'm doing is, well, what could we get out of this? Oh. In that okay. way. Yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. we understand that he's talking to monks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. interesting that he's telling yeah, the monks. But the monks no. are
1: talking to monks themselves. Like, the monks aren't really in the world having a lot of problems with gossip. Ah, uh, well,
0: they, no, actually.
1: I, I'm just trying to get a picture.
0: No, no, no. There appears to have been a lot of uh, problems within the Sangha of the creation of schisms, as they're usually called, there's a lot of time spent in sutras about avoiding the creation of schisms, and it starts with a lot of the bad speech stuff, and so a lot of it is about so again social cohesion in that way
1: within their little their little song out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then the last part is our damaging seeds and crops, which speaks to our farming. He eats once a day and not at night. This has been the rule since day one. You beg all morning. You eat basically at noon or before noon, and then that's it. Uh, basically, uh, he's inter- intermittent fasting, I guess is what we call it now, yeah. right? Um, uh, refraining from eating at improper times, which is to say at night. He avoids it. So here's the big one. He avoids watching, dancing, singing, music, and shows. He abstains from using garlands, which is uh, rosaries of flowers, perfumes, cosmetics, i.e., makeup, ornaments, and adornments, jewelry. He avoids using high or wide beds. He avoids accepting gold and silver, avoids accepting raw grain and raw flesh, does not accept women and young girls, which sadly makes it seem like that was a thing, you know, obviously we know this still to this day, but definitely no Buddhists is as is accepting women and young girls, male or female slaves, sheep, goats, cocks, pigs, elephants, cattle, horses, mares, fields, and plots. He re- refrains from running errands,
1: <laughs>
0: buying and selling, period, cheating with false weights and measures, bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity. He refrains from wounding, killing, imprisoning, highway robbery and the taking of food by force. Thus, a world that would praise the Buddha. Questions about that stuff? Because that's where some folks are like, wait a minute. If yeah. you're not
1: buying anything, why are you worrying about
0: your false weights and measures? <laughs> <laughs> ah! That's a good point. Um, my guess is is that there must have been a function of dealing with the weights and measures in which one was not buying or selling anything but strictly weighing things out and using you know a little heavier one over here or something like that. I mean again, these are it's sort of more a little more of what I wanted to do tonight that we didn't really quite do but Understanding where these rules originally come from, getting to what's really being spoken about, and then how could we apply it to our world today. So again, specifically they're talking about some function as weights and measures, but if you take a step back, they're talking about deceiving people, right? Because it actually is, is it's about um, duh, 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 by cheating with false weights and measures. So if I had a scale and I were weighing something out for somebody, that's cool. But the deeper thing is actually about cheating people. So does anybody have a problem with not cheating anybody? If you see see what I'm getting at, like how can we, what can we, you know, distill or extract from these rules? If we're not in the business of using weights and measures, what we can extract is, oh, don't cheat people. If you're playing a card game, don't have one up your sleeve. Stuff like that, right? Now the big one that gets people is the uh, avoiding watching dancing, singing, music, and shows, which of course in the modern world would be no movies, no Netflix, no TV, none of that.
1: For a monk.
0: For a monk, for a monk. Now, from my research, a lot of people are A lot of people suggest that the, that prohibition is about the sort of licentious stuff that went on at places where there were shows and theaters and dancing and things like that. And so one shouldn't even go to the places where that stuff is happening. But I don't actually, I mean, I've read other things, other, uh, well, the, read the Vinaya, and I don't think it's actually saying that. I think it's actually talking about, like, being entertained. Versus meditating, for example. (laughs) They're like, why aren't you meditating? Why are you at the movies? Why are you at the show? So, um, as somebody brought up, though, that's for the monks. What could we get away from that, though? Nothing? Do we think that's just for the monks? Yeah?
1: It seems... um Obviously, if you're like, practicing mindfulness in your life, at least something that I have noticed is that some media makes me unhappy yep. and I engage with it compulsively anyway unless I'm really paying attention. So one could infer that in today's world, the Buddha would be like, pay attention to how you feel when you're scrolling through Facebook.
0: Maybe stop. <laughs> totally. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that read. Yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking about... Like, because I I wouldn't, I I would avoid the sort of like, well, I'm not a monk, so I'm going to the movies. Versus the, you know, like with the sexuality thing. It's like, yeah, okay, fine. You're not a monk, so you're not celibate. But there's still something to be taken away from from this. And in the same way regarding the theater shows, it's like, okay, I'm not a monk, so maybe I'm not going to go so far as to not go at all. But maybe there's still some wisdom that I can... Take away from this, right?
1: I mean, any external stimulus uh, from whether it's technology, I mean, we have a lot of stimulus in, in this current uh, age.
0: Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm.
1: and empirically, in my practice, when I meditate, if I'm subject to that, then I totally <laughs> feel the impact of that on my yep. meditation practice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah,
0: again, I, I've, I've. I've gone through this with people in the past and whenever they hear about the singing, dancing, or perfumes and garlands and all of that, it's sort of like sad face, like, oh, really? But, and and it's like, you know, you can have that reaction, but I would rather kind of dig deeper and like, well, no, but what's going on there, right? Because of course, a lot of the adornments and things like that are about, I would assume they are about the reaffirmation of the self Feeling like and what makes one feel good about oneself versus not feel good about oneself in that way. And sort of the Buddhist recommendation that one should not be receiving gratification from that in that way. There's other ways. But again, that's just one read on the cosmetics and things like that. But, but, you know, what's interesting, I don't know if anybody spent a lot of time in in, uh, Buddhist monasteries, Um, you know, Mahayana Buddhists are a little more into adornments, uh, mala beads and things like that. So they're a little more into it, but all of the Buddhist monasteries I've lived in no mirrors, you have no opportunity to check yourself out. And it's a very interesting thing that happens after a month or two of not seeing your own face. It's fascinating what happens to you when you haven't seen your own face for a while. Your sense of self gets quite different. If, just imagine it. And think about how often we, especially with the, with the selfie cam, how often we are seeing our own face in that way. And so, of course, wearing makeup and things like that would not necessitate a mirror, but kind of reinforce that idea of, of one's perception of oneself. All right, that's time, so I think I'm gonna uh, stop there, and again, I'm gonna try to finish this up next week. Any last questions, ideas on this regarding? Yes, oh yeah.
1: Um, So I was thinking like the main problem for me when it comes to all this like music and good food is sort of this, uh, it's just a sense pleasure that gives rise to craving, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's sort of intoxication in a way. and so it, it, it has that problem, I guess, with Buddhism, because then you sort of have those cravings that you should not be having, mm-hmm. according to the path. And the other one is this problem of escapism from you know what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And then so you just like, like people shove a bunch of food to avoid you know other problems, right? And the same with music. I, I feel that I do that. Mm-hmm. I play a lot of music just to... You know, and
0: I'll deal with other stuff. <laughs> yeah. And that's sort of along the lines of, of her read of like, maybe what we can take away from this is just noticing what this stuff is doing to us or noticing, oh, I'm displacing some emotions w- with food or, you know, these, these kinds of things that I think can happen. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So more to come on Brahma's net, and we will find out more about the net in a moment, but or next week. But mainly, what I wanted to do with this is that the morality stuff. Again, most people will say that the Buddha is a great guy because of this morality stuff, and he's going to say it's not this stuff that I'm doing; it's this Dharma I teach. So stay tuned for the Dharma next week.